Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18 and 19. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. If I had started Christ Church Vienna 20 years ago when I was early on in my pastoral work, the focus of Christ Church Vienna would be on correct doctrine and church discipline. My goal back then as a pastor was to wake sleeping Christians and to weed out weak Christians. A full third of you would never have made the cut. But we started Christ Church Vienna six years ago, and something changed between then and the other then. And a lot of it is seen in some of the focus that we have as a church that is actually part of my own vision. One of those is to be externally focused, a church that is more concerned about those outside of the church than those inside the church. And I saw within me a change that happened over the course of time, where I grew in compassion and patience for people who were all over the map spiritually. What changed? One of the first things that changed about 15 years ago is I started spending actual time with and became friends with actual people who don't church. There are people who don't do this. And when you get to know them, it's surprising what they don't care about. And it's surprising what they do. And I found that the matters that mattered to me began to change. Things like theological disputes became less important. And the gospel and its implications on our lives 
And what Jesus had to say about real life issues became more important. The gospel itself over the course of time became more important as I understood the gospel and its implications in my life more and more. Going back to the cross, the very simple basic message, but applying it further and further into my life. It actually caused me to be more humble and filled with grace, less superior. And the third thing was more recent, really 10 years ago. I'd been a Christian since I was five, but it was rediscovering Jesus. Books that I started reading, sermons I was listening to, and even just looking at the gospel. I sat in the gospel of Luke that we've been looking at for over a year on my own. And I began to have a renewed vision of who God is. You know, a lot of people talk about wanting to know God, whether they're Christians or not. And it's a challenge. Who is he? What's he like? How does he deal with me? What the Bible says, what Christianity says is, if you want to know God, you need to know, to see, and to experience Jesus. And that's why we started this series in the Gospel of Luke back in September, and we're sitting in it. We even encourage some different books. We have a whole reading plan out there. Is we want uh, us to be the kind of people who are seeing Jesus constantly. Some of the best ways to do that are in stories like the one that we had read out of Luke today. Luke 18 into 19 are two parallel stories that are part of this grand narrative that Luke's telling as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. So let's dig into it and see if we can see Jesus this morning, maybe slightly differently, if not reaffirming who he is. So the story begins in eight, chapter 18, verse 35, as Jesus is approaching Jericho. Jesus is approaching Jericho, and there are crowds around him. Now, in the Middle East, even today, but especially in the ancient Middle East, it was normal to greet and to walk with a guest if they were a dignitary as they were entering your city. So it was even recorded that in the early 60s, one village went 10 miles outside of the city in order to walk with and to, to kind of walk alongside and escort the president of Egypt. So the crowds go out because they hear Jesus is coming. And he's become quite the celebrity by this time. And they're hoping, oh, he's going to spend some time with us. But as the crowds and Jesus are walking towards Jericho, there's a blind man on the side of the road. We see this starting in verse 36. And he asks what's going on, and they say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is, is coming by. And I think the first thing that we're probably supposed to do is to stop and say, okay, so what's that guy's life like? And it's, it's hard to be with disability at any point in the world, but to be blind in the ancient world was significantly disabling. On one level, you see where he lives or spends most of his time outside of the city. He was somebody who was pushed out. Part of it was economic reasons, but also he was not one of them fully. Somebody who was blind in that day and age was by Jewish ceremonial law unclean, not able to participate fully in the religious traditions of the day in a culture that was incredibly religiously rich where everything was focused on temple and worship. He is unclean and outside. And his life was a constant struggle, living completely dependent on the alms of people passing by and others who would take care of him. That's who we're dealing with. He cries out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
He has insight here. This is actually a unique phrase, a title for Jesus that most people don't use. Son of David is indicative of him being the Messiah. So here's this blind man on the side of the road, a beggar. He probably has never traveled anywhere outside of his own village other than to the outside walls. And he's heard about Jesus and is able to take it a step further and say, Son of David. Jesus, I believe you are Son of David. And by saying that, he's attributing the Messiahship to Jesus and probably all the hopes that went with that. The Old Testament recorded the hope that one day God would bring a king like David who would reign over his people and he would bring God's kingdom. In the process of bringing God's kingdom, the poor would have the good news preached to them and the prisoner would be set free and the blind would see when the son of David comes. So he's there on the side of the road, son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. Bring your kingdom in my life. The crowds say, be quiet. They rebuke him, be silent. They're actually saying, shut up. It's a very blatant phrasing in the Greek. You are a nobody? Quiet down. Jesus is a man of business. He's got important things, and whatever you're about is not what he's about. Just quiet down. You're embarrassing our village. But Jesus stops. What do you want? What do you want, he says in verse 41. You know, Jesus, by this time, it's very clear that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he has already told the disciples numerous times, I am going to Jerusalem in order to be handed over to the authorities. They will accuse me. I will be crucified. And on the third day, I will rise again. He is heading towards Jerusalem with such focus that this is is all that's on his mind. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have a tendency to have something on my mind and forget about everyone else. So I've actually been, uh, been told I need to be careful of this on Sunday mornings before church when I'm preaching because I will walk straight past people as if they don't exist. Later on, if somebody said, why didn't you stop and say hi to me, I might say, I had no idea you were there. And it's not because I dislike you. It's because I'm not, I, my head is somewhere else. I do that walking into my house. My wife has told me that when her friends are sitting there and she's there with them, I'm supposed to say hi to them I was thinking about something else. I, I'm trying better at this. but And this is with silly things, the sort of small things that are on my mind. Jesus has a cross on his mind. But he stops. Oh, this guy's important. Jesus stops for this beggar. What do you want? He's giving him dignity and status. Just by talking to him in that culture, he's saying, you matter. You exist. You are made in my Father's image. I love and care about you. Everyone else should see he matters. I want you to restore my sight, he says. And then Jesus declares, your faith has made you well. That phrase, made well, or that word made well, is actually a double entendre there in the positive sense of that phrasing. It means both healed physically, but also saved. It's the word sozo from which we get salvation. Your faith has healed you physically and spiritually. He glorifies God and begins to follow Jesus, and then the crowd, seeing what has happened, begin to praise God. Jesus has just done three things for this man very quickly. 
He has restored him physically and spiritually and also socially because he is now being returned to his community as somebody who is clean and able to participate fully in the life of the community. He doesn't stop there, though. Jesus continues on into Jericho with this crowd all around him. And according to verse 1 of chapter 19, Jesus is passing through on his way to Jerusalem. Like I said, as he had told the disciples, he was heading to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. He had a fixed mind of where he was going because he knew that was part of his calling. So he's heading to Jerusalem, and probably the people of Jericho are a little bit sad. They want him to stop and stay with them. They want to be able to host him. But he's heading on through. And then we get in verse 2 that there was a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector. And again, we need to stop there. You guys, if you've been in churches, have heard stories about this. But if not, let me just give you a little bit of insight. A tax collector in that day and age was a collaborator with the Romans. It was like being a collaborator in Nazi-occupied France. You became a hated entity. You were rejecting your people, and for the Jewish people, it meant you were rejecting God. He was a collaborator with the Romans who was entrusted to raise money and pass it on to Rome. So under the authority of the Roman sword, he was told to collect a certain amount of money. Now, it might be something like this. You're in the city of Jericho. You are responsible for collecting a million dollars and sending it on um, to Rome. And so he has a couple of underling tax collectors, and they're collecting money, but the people of Jericho have no idea how much money is supposed to be sent back to Rome. So he could go around saying, yep, you guys owe $3 million, even though he only has to send a million back. Extortion, bribes, thievery, at the expense of his own people, making himself rich and the Romans rich. He was hated, as any tax collector would have been in that culture. Later, rabbinic writings said it was even allowable according to the law, which said, do not lie, but for a tax collector, you were allowed to lie to them. He probably had spent decades with every person avoiding him, despising him, hating him. He has access to power, and because of his wealth, he has everything he needs. And yet, something is missing, and he knows it. In verse 3, we read that he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he was small in stature, And the crowds want nothing to do with letting him anywhere near Jesus. They're not going to move away to let him come through. So then he does something absurd. He runs ahead and climbs a tree in order to see Jesus. Now in today's day and age, patriarchs, rich men, men of stature, do not run or climb trees. In that ancient world, which was an honor and shame culture, the idea of some head of household, some wealthy man, some man of stature running was absurd, and climbing trees was never heard of. Just to give you a little insight, that same uh, missionary and New Testament scholar, Kenneth Bailey, who writes about all this stuff in some of his commentaries, said that when he was working in Egypt in the 1960s, the story got around that the then ambassador to uh, Egypt, John Bedeau, had climbed trees in his back garden of the embassy in in order to hang lights so that there could be an outdoor garden party. 
This became so scandalous within all the circles around Egypt that President Nasser of Egypt heard about it, and the next time he met with John Bedeau, he had to ask, is, is it true? Are the rumors true? Were you actually climbing a tree in the, in the embassy garden? Americans are shameless. But in that culture, it was completely dishonorable and beneath somebody like the ambassador of America to climb a tree. That was 1960. Go back 2,000 years before that. Zacchaeus doesn't seem to care. Jesus, walking along, turns to the tree. Zacchaeus, come down. It's probably like the last thing Zacchaeus wants. He's up in a tree. People don't like him. There's leaves. He's hidden. He can sort of see. That's about all he wants. A little good distance, but a better sight. Don't stop. Oh, no, he's calling me. And probably he's in great fear. This rabbi is going to accuse him and call him out, and they'll probably stone him at that point. That's what every other rabbi would have done, but not Jesus. Again, by addressing him, he's given dignity to him, a person that nobody else would talk to. Come down, I must stay at your house today. Jesus had taken the time to stop and speak to the oppressed blind man, and he stops and takes time to speak to the oppressor, the tax collector. Huh very much like us. In village life, hospitality was an incredibly important thing. When a dignitary came through somebody of means or stature, the entire village would prepare for this person to come. They would choose the host to celebrate with a banquet. They would decide which guests would be there. And he would stay the night at the most prominent person in town. By hosting a dignitary like a Jesus, whoever hosted him was elevated within the community and brought honor to the entire village by hosting well. The expectation would have been the chief rabbi or somebody like the rich ruler that we talked about last week would have been the host of a Jesus. Think about what Jesus is doing by saying to Zacchaeus, you, I'm going to stay at your house today. He is elevating Zacchaeus before the entire community. He gets to be my host. He'll receive the honor, and through him, all of you will be blessed and honored. That was the first problem. The second was that Jesus was going to be eating with this guy. Meals in that ancient culture were covenantal. You might as well put a ring on her finger and say, hey, let's, let's get married. By eating with somebody, you were accepting and approving of them. There was deep reciprocity and a deep entwinement that happened with people who ate together. Jesus is staying at Zacchaeus' house and is going to eat with him. No one had ever treated Zacchaeus with such non-reciprocal kindness and generosity. So it's no wonder that the crowds do the thing they do next. They grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now that word grumble is a Hebraism. Don't think about it like your kids grumbling. It's not complaining or whining. 
It's not criticizing. Like, oh, that's not fair. He should have stayed at my house. Grumbling is almost a Hebraism for a formal legal accusation. It's to bring somebody to trial. You see this throughout the Old Testament when it says the people of Israel grumbled against Moses or grumbled against God. In Exodus 17, they're walking along, the people of Israel, and there's no water. They're nearly dying, and so what do they do? They grumble against Moses and therefore Yahweh God. You brought us out here to kill us. They're accusing Moses and God of murder. But all it says is they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And it brings up the question, who do you think deserves God's grace and mercy? We all have people on different extremes that we feel like probably need to be different people if they're going to receive God's grace and mercy. Who is it for you? Progressive activists? or conservative radio hosts? Immigrants or rednecks? Who doesn't really deserve God's grace and mercy? Is it the urban poor or the country club set? Who we think deserves God's grace and mercy and who doesn't affects who we will spend time with, who we will care about, as well as who we will ignore, reject, and despise. Thankfully, Jesus is in the business of extending grace and mercy to everyone. And with Zacchaeus, he does so at great cost to himself. Think about this. Zacchaeus is despised and hated by his entire community. As Jesus says, I'm going to your house today, what happens? Jesus redirects the community's hatred and shame off of Zacchaeus and onto himself. Instead of hating Zacchaeus, now they're hating Jesus. Who is he? Who does he think he is? He is bearing the wrath that Zacchaeus rightly deserves in his place. Isn't that what Jesus does for all of us? It's what the gospel says. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become holy and right before God. While we were still sinners, Romans 5 says, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that you loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. That means he dies in our place for what we deserve for our sins. And it could be summed up by this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not because we deserve it. What Jesus does with Zacchaeus is what he does with all of us and for all of us on the cross. How do you respond to that? Well, how did Zacchaeus respond? He says in verse eight, here today I give away half of my wealth to the poor and I will repay four times whatever I have stolen or swindled from people. Now, according to the Old Testament law, he probably should have given 20-ish percent of his money away to the poor 
And if he needed to repay restitution for having stolen something, it was replace it or replace it double. So one or one and a half times. Instead, he says, four times I'll repay. He is willing to make himself actually somewhat poor, relatively. But think about the difference between him and the rich ruler that we talked about last week. Jesus challenges the rich ruler, give away everything, and sadly he goes away because he's holding too tightly to his wealth. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house, your house, 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 and Zacchaeus just starts throwing his money always. Zacchaeus doesn't want the money. He wants Jesus. Repentance, which is what we see in Zacchaeus, is an active reorientation of you saying you are no longer Lord. Jesus is. And so Jesus is able to say the declaration in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, which is actually the very thing the rich ruler wanted, hey, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God, right? He's saying the kingdom of God has come into this man's life, and on top of that, he is a son of Abraham. And think about what he's doing by saying that. Because of his his work as a tax collector, the people all around in that community had rejected him. He is no longer part of the covenant. He is not one of us. He is not Israel. He is not one of our people. And Jesus is saying, not only is he in my kingdom, but he's in the kingdom of God. He is mine. Now you make him yours. I love the progression of what happens in this story and the ones before it. It's a progression of sight, actually, of seeing Jesus for who he is. I'm going to back us up to last week. Not all of you were here, but last week we talked about the rich ruler. Now, the rich ruler came to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. But when Jesus challenged him at the level of his wealth, he refused to see Jesus for who he was. Then in the very next little story that we didn't read today or last week, Jesus is talking to the twelve just the 12, his closest friends. And he says, I am going to Jerusalem and I am going to die on a cross and rise again. And in verse 34, the summary of what um, the disciples understood about this was they understood none. It was hidden from them. They couldn't grasp it. The people closest to Jesus are unable to see. Then the very next story is of a blind man who can't see, but he's sitting there on the side of the road crying out, Son of David. The one who can't see physically is able to see spiritually who Jesus actually is, and so he gains his sight physically because his spiritual insight has already been there. And then we get to the last story of the man farthest from God, an evil tax collector who has rejected God and done all sorts of sinful bad things. but because he is absolutely desperate to see Jesus and willing to give up everything to see him, he sees. Why is it that the tax collector and the poor, cursed, blind man see when the rich ruler, who was actually a very good religious man, 
and the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, don't see. I think when it comes to seeing what we see in this passage or the wider passage that it's a part of, it's not just those who want to see Jesus who see him because both the rich ruler and Zacchaeus wanted to see him. It's also not proximity to Jesus-y things like showing up at church or being in a small group or going on a missions trip. The 12 did a lot of that sort of thing and they were constantly unable to see. I think seeing comes in the Gospels for those who are willing to see Jesus as he is and as he reveals himself. Not our assumptions, but a willingness to be challenged and changed by him. If you want to see Jesus, you need to let Jesus affect your view of everything. Your view of others, for instance, which we talked about from a moment ago. Who do you find easy to dislike? Who do you tend to avoid? Who is it least easy to love? Either an actual person in your family or circles or a type of person, a caricature. When the gospel penetrates because you have seen Jesus, it undoes all coldness and disdain. If you still have coldness, or animosity, you probably haven't really seen Jesus. When you see Jesus, it affects your view not only of others, but of the world as a whole. And let's take politics for an example, because that's one way that we have a worldview is our politics, and we are an incredibly divided culture. My experience with most Christians in America, not, not you guys, but most other Christians, let's say, is that we pick and choose which parts of Jesus to listen to and which parts to kind of push down. So political conservatives like the traditional morality of Jesus. Political liberals like the social justice of Jesus. A political conservative says, yes, did you hear what Jesus says about sexuality or about the sanctity of life? And a political liberal says, did you hear what Jesus says about systemic racism or care of the immigrant? Each side elevates something and pushes something else down, which indicates that we're letting our politics trump Jesus. It's not the right term. It's literally a Freudian slip. <laughs> there it is. It's, it's not coming back. Jesus' kingdom was not based on the American Constitution. Nor did Jesus' kingdom give birth to Western individualistic liberalism as we know it today. Jesus' kingdom is wholly other. When you let Jesus affect your view of others and the world, it affects your view of God as well. It changes everything. If you want to see Jesus, seek him wholly and completely. If you're a Christian and you've kind of been cold to Jesus, take an inventory of yourself. How much time do you spend with the released religious people in your life? When you look at the world around you, does your heart break or get filled with fear and anger? 
If it's any of those things, maybe this Lent, which starts on Wednesday, it's like the 40 days, not counting Sundays, and if you're not really a Lent person, just say 40 days, you know. Rediscover Jesus. Read a book about him. Go to the Gospels. Look at the reading plan that we have available. Spend time looking at Jesus. If you are here as more of a skeptic, a doubter, unsure, you used to buy into Jesus, not really anymore, but you do want to see him, you need to accept being found. That's the phrasing that one writer uses. Accept being found. Zacchaeus is hiding up in a tree. He doesn't really want to be found. (laughs) But when Jesus says, come down, he does. He accepts that Jesus has found him. In verse 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know, the greatest thing about uh, the phones today is Google Maps, because as a man, I am never lost. Now, I've never really had issues with, like, kind of, am I lost? Can I ask directions? Because I'm never lost. And I don't think it has to do with just being a man. I think it has to do with being right, and I'm always right. But the great thing about having a Google map is so long as I have at least 3G worth of connection, I can find where I'm going at any point. So it does away with the whole stop by the gas station thing. No no more embarrassment, just here, control. It's great. When it comes to spiritual things, are you willing to admit that you're lost? To accept being found, you must start with admitting that you're lost and need to be found. If you get there, Jesus will take care of the rest. Let's pray. God, our Father, give us eyes to see, to see inside of ourselves and to see you for who you are. And seeing, may we accept being found. Amen.